Well, good morning and welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time here. This is the Friday morning worship gathering of Redeemer Church of Dubai. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the elders here at the church and we do want to welcome you. We're glad that you're here. If you take some time today, we'd encourage you to read through the bulletin to learn more about our church and what we are doing here in the UAE. Also, please take a moment to fill out the visitor page on the back. You can hand that to someone at our connections table on your way out this morning. I also want to let you know that we have our next membership class on Membership Weekend are happening today and tomorrow at 4 to 7 p.m. this afternoon and then tomorrow morning from 9 a.m. to 12 noon, we'll have our Membership Weekender behind Lemuridian Hotel in the training room. Those, there's a map in your bulletin. If you're new to us, uh, this is a great opportunity for you to see what we believe as a church, what are the truths from Scripture um, that guide us, what is our mission here in the UAE, what are we hoping to see God do. You'll get to meet some of the elders and staff of the church as well. So this is a great first step for you uh, to get to know us, for us to get to know you. It doesn't commit you to anything or guarantee you'll join, but it's a great step. Or maybe you've been here for a while. Maybe you've been coming to Redeemer. Maybe you've even been sitting in the back. You're kind of towards the, from the back rows and maybe you slip out as soon as the service is over. You haven't really met anybody yet. You haven't really dug into the community here. Well, this would be a good step for you too, whether you've been coming for six months, a year, two years. But if you haven't joined the church, we'd encourage you to come and to run this race together with the rest of us. That you don't try to live a lone ranger Christian life in the UAE, but you join together with other Christians to sharpen each other, to pray with one another, to build into each other uh, to help one another grow. So that's this afternoon at 4 p.m. Uh, even if you haven't signed up, that's, that's fine. We'll have plenty of food and plenty of space, so just, just make sure you come today at 4 p.m. And then one more thing, next Friday uh, we will celebrate Redeemer Church of Dubai's birthday. I love this every year. This year Redeemer turns four, and we're excited to celebrate God's faithfulness to us as a church. Some of you will remember four years ago, we started for a few weeks in Um Sakim in someone's basement for some pre-launch meetings, and then we moved over to a City Center Hotel at Dira City Center, met there for a year and a half, and we've been here uh, for almost two and a half years at the JW Marriott, and we've seen God do some miraculous things in our church. We've seen a great multitude come to faith, people repent of their sin and turn to Jesus for salvation. We've seen Christians grow in grace. Uh, We've seen people sent out from here to do ministry in their home country. We've seen churches planted. Even today, as Jason prayed, Grace Evangelical Church of Sharjah launches this very hour in that emirate. And so we have a lot to rejoice. We have a lot to celebrate. So come next Friday, 6 p.m. It's moved up one hour from what we said last week. So not five, but 6 p.m. behind Lemuridian Hotel again in the manager's uh, compound there. And let's celebrate God's goodness to us together. Well, as we approach the word of God today, let us go to him in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your holy word, with the word pierced to the deepest part of our hearts, would we receive not merely information that affects our minds, but would it lead to transformation that affects our hearts? Father, we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited because today we're starting a 14-week series in the book of Galatians. We're going to look at this book. I'll likely pick up the book of Genesis again from chapter 12 on in September as we'll look at the patriarchs there in the first book of the Bible. But we want to pause 
and spend 14 weeks looking at how the gospel intersects with life. How the gospel intersects with life. This book of Galatians is a gospel-soaked book that shows us that the good news of Jesus is not just a message that saves unbelievers, but that it's a message that has the power to transform the lives of believers on a daily basis. Now, Galatians is like a little bomb. (laughs) It's not a very long book. It's only six chapters, in fact. But it's a bold letter that fights for the truths of the gospel. And this morning, we'll get a foundational statement on the gospel, on what it is, and its importance in the life of the church. And we'll see three things about the gospel. This will be our outline. Let me just give you one at a time. So first, the first thing we'll see in the beginning of the book of Galatians is we see the ministry of the gospel explained in verses 1 and 2. The minister of the gospel. Let's look at verse 1. Paul. Let's stop there. That sounds like a good place to stop, doesn't it? We need to know who wrote this letter. It was written by someone named Paul. What do we know about Paul? Well, we know his original name was Saul of Tarsus. Before he was Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus. And in the book of Acts, we see Stephen. Stephen's one of the early church deacons. He preaches a dynamite sermon. Preaches in front of a great multitude, a great crowd, and he goes through salvation history and he shows people Christ and what Christ has done. But this crowd is furious. Not just angry enough to write hate mail or fill out a negative comment card or post a bad review on the internet. No, they're beyond furious. They're angry. They want revenge. And so Acts 7 tells us that this crowd, that these people in the crowd, they murdered Stephen. They stoned him. They crushed his skull with stones. And it says that the witnesses there laid their garments at the feet of a man named Saul. And in just a few verses later, in Acts chapter 8, we see that Saul approved of the execution. That the Saul of Tarsus was happy. He was thrilled that this man was dead. He wasn't shocked. He didn't wonder, well, was, was, was this the right thing? I mean, we... We just killed a man. Should we? Shouldn't we have? No. And he's not conflicted. The text in Acts says that Saul heartily agreed. He approved of the murder. No, he was one who enjoyed murdering Christians. But Saul didn't stop there. He starts going at the homes, house after house, dragging people out and putting them in prison and some to death. He dragged out Husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, uncles and aunts, pastors and friends. He literally drags them out and parades them straight to prison. And in in Acts chapter 9, he's on the way to Damascus. He goes up there and he asks the high priests for a letter, a letter of permission, a letter of jurisdiction, so that he can make arrests of Christians that he finds along the way. No, he's not even passively keeping his eyes open. Well, maybe if I see a Christian over there, okay, I'll I'll arrest him. No, no, he's on a manhunt for Christians. He's looking to find them, to drag them to prison and even to death. Now, this guy is one sick individual. But on the way to kill more Christians, something happens to Saul. On there, on the road to Damascus, on the road up north, he goes blind. He, he loses his sight. 
We read there that it was Jesus who blinds him. Jesus blinds his physical eyes, but he opens the eyes. Jesus doesn't ask Saul's permission to, well, pretty please, think about what you're doing. You know, stop persecuting me. It's not good for my people. No, no, Jesus snatches Saul out from the pit of death. Saul dragged people to death, but Jesus dragged people to life. Saul murdered people, but Jesus caused him to be born again. Saul hates Christians, but Jesus loves Saul. I mean, do you see how absolutely mind-boggling this is? I mean, this is absolutely astonishing. And Christian friend, this may be startling to you, but it's no different than your conversion to Christ. You likely didn't fall to the ground. You perhaps weren't blinded by the glory of God. But what God did for Saul, he did for you. There are no boring, born-again birth stories. No dull testimonies. Now, Christian friend, do you see how God did this for you? You hated God. You deserved death. In fact, you were dead. You didn't have any strength or any power to bargain with God or make a deal with Jesus. No, God sovereignly, in his grace, brought you to life. Now, this is grace. Oh, friend, marvel at God's work in your life today. Marvel at the grace that God has shown you. He has brought you from death to life. In that moment on the road to Damascus, Saul's life was completely transformed. This murderer became the greatest church planter in our history on one of his missionary journeys, he plants churches in the Galatian cities of Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch of Pisidia. But later on, he hears of a problem back in these churches. There were false teachers that had come into the church and began to preach a false message. They were injecting this false truth. And so Paul quickly pens this letter to them. Because some doubted Paul's credibility, he lets them know in the very beginning of the letter where his authority comes from. Look back at verse 1. We see Paul. He calls himself an apostle. Now let me explain what this is. Now real early church apostles, capital A apostles, were men who were eyewitnesses. They were all eyewitnesses to Jesus. They were appointed by him. They preached the gospel. They wrote books of the Bible and spoke with authority given them from Jesus. Now, while Paul wasn't one of the 12 apostles with Jesus before his death, he's considered one because he saw the risen Christ. He was confronted by Jesus there on the road to Damascus and commissioned by Christ. Well, in addition to these apostles, we read that there's a gift of apostleship in the New Testament as well. These might be called lower case A apostles. They're simply missionaries who go out and preach to people who don't know Jesus. They go out to uncharted territories to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named previously. But there are no more capital A apostles. After they passed away, we see in the Bible they were not replaced. There was not a second set or a B team or a C team or a D team. No, there was just one set of apostles there in the early church. And that apostolic ministry of that kind ended 
with their passing. Now Paul's point here in the beginning of the letter is to tell the Galatians that his authority comes from God. It was a divine commission. And if they didn't understand that from his title, he presses it further. He repeats deity five times in the opening verses. God the Father, God the Father, God the Father, Jesus, Jesus. Though Paul's saying, hey guys, I'm not an apostle from man or through man. No, it's, it's Jesus who called me. It's Jesus who found me. It's Jesus who sent me. It's Jesus who gives me this message. Now, when you're out looking for a job and you take your CV, you write it up all nice, when you come down to the reference section, who do you put down for your character references? Well, you certainly don't put down Bill the Town Drunk, do you? You don't want your future employer calling Bill the Drunk. No, what you do is you put on that paper the most important people in your life who know you who can speak well of you, who will be professional. Now, what you're doing when you're doing that is that you're name dropping. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. He's name dropping. Paul wants you to know that he's not coming on his own authority. He says, I'm not coming on my own authority or from man. I'm coming from God, 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 Jesus, Jesus. It's Jesus who sends me. He's my character reference. Now, he's all over Paul's CV. But not just that. Paul continues and says, well, actually, all the brothers who are with me also. There's, there's others. He says, I'm not the only one following this Jesus. There's a whole bunch of us. He wasn't alone on some island making up some message. No, he's joined a brotherhood. Just a side note, it's important to know that If someone comes up to you and says that he or she thinks that they've discovered a new doctrine after 2,000 years of church history, you need to know that that they're crazy. (laughs) You know, if someone says, I've come up with a new doctrine, a new word from God. And we actually see this often where people self-proclaim themselves as apostles, capital A, apostles, sent from God with a new message to people. They start denominations. They start gathering a flock with this new word. But see, the problem is there is no new message. It's the problem. There, there is no message beyond the gospel, no message beyond the Bible. Well, why is Paul spending all this time in the introduction saying these things? Well, apparently these false teachers had mounted a powerful attack on Paul's authority. They were saying, no, you've got it all wrong. The gospel's not right. And, and who is this Paul anyway? Who do you think you are? What right do you have to claim what is truth and what is not truth. They were saying, this Paul, this guy, he's a nobody. Well, Paul's saying, well, it's true, I am a nobody. But thankfully, my authority and my message doesn't come from me, but from God. The minister of the gospel has authority from God to speak the message of God. So what is this message? Well, it's the second point of our passage this morning in verses 3 through 5. Paul will lay out this gospel message. And he gets right to the heart of the gospel in verse 3. He says it's by grace. And it brings peace. If you want to sum up what distinguishes Christianity from any other belief system in the world, it's that. It's grace. It's nothing we have done. It's all of what he 
has done. Well, how is grace shown to us? Well, look at verse 4. Who, he's speaking of Christ, who gave himself. The Savior gave himself. Christ's death wasn't tragic. Do you know that? It, it, It wasn't some tragedy that happened to happen. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't, oops, oh, Jesus got caught by the bad guys. Oh, no. Now, why did he go to that garden again? Why did he let himself get caught? No, friend, Jesus wasn't capturable. Judas Iscariot, Pontius Pilate, Herod, and the rest of the gang, they thought they were so sly that they could go into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. No, no, they were fools. Jesus gave himself up. He knew they were coming. He was praying in the Garden for strength. He let them arrest him. The Bible says he chose to lay down his life. Why? Why did he give himself up? Well, verse 4 tells us. For our sins. He gave himself up in death for our sins. Jesus died to provide what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. His righteousness for our sins. The substitution of the righteous Jesus for unrighteous sinners. It's the core and the center of the gospel, this exchange. And why did Jesus give himself up for our sins? Well, the text continues. It it goes further and says to deliver us, or as some translations say, to rescue us. Now we're in bondage to sin. We are lost and wandering hopelessly in our own moral darkness. No, we need to be saved. We need to be rescued. We need to be delivered. Now, substitution is why the gospel is so revolutionary. Christ's death was not just a general sacrifice, but a substitutionary one. He didn't merely buy us a second chance, giving us another opportunity to get right with God. No, he died in our place. Martin Luther says these words are the very thunderclaps from heaven against all forms of self-righteousness. Because once we have seen Christ give himself up in death for our sins, we realize that we are sinners unable to save ourselves. That we needed one, we needed God to give it to us in grace. Now if you see a man drowning, if you see a man drowning in the water, shouting for help, 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 help. You don't throw him a manual on how to swim, do you? Here's a book. It'll teach you how to backstroke to safety. Just take a little read and I'll see you later on at shore. No, you would never do that. It'd be ridiculous. He will drown along with that book. You see, our text says Jesus came not to teach us how to save ourselves. He came not to teach us how to swim. He came not to teach us how to be reconciled to him and get to heaven. He came to deliver us. He came to actually be our rescue. Well, how does he rescue us? Well, he jumps in the water himself. He rescues us. And he dies in the process. See, the good news of the gospel starts with some bad news. That we've all sinned by rejecting a holy God, the holy God of the universe. And we've lived our lives as if we're king. We've made ourselves 
front and center in the universe. We've put ourselves on the throne of God, and we've said, no, we're the king. We're the standard of truth. We're the standard of behavior. We will rule our personal universe. The Bible says there are two ways we can keep on living from that point. One is we can stay in rebellion to God, in opposition to God, which means our only just punishment is death, eternal death, suffering, and judgment. Or, and here's the good news. Here's the good news. There's another way we can live. We can look to Jesus. We can say that we can't save ourselves. We can look to Jesus, God in the flesh, who came down to the earth, who lived the life we could never live, who died the death we deserved on the cross as our substitute, and then rose from the dead, proving on the third day that he was indeed divine, that he was God. Now we can look to that substitute and do as is commanded in Mark chapter 1 to be saved. We see that Jesus says, repent of our sin and believe in him. If we do this, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and bring us into his everlasting kingdom. Oh friend, this is good news, isn't it? This is great news. The gospel says the only thing you need if you're going to be saved, are you ready for it? Here it is. Did you hear it? Nothing. The only thing you need to be saved is nothing. You need nothing. You see, the only way you can become a Christian is not by pointing to your own qualifications, but by admitting that you have no qualifications. Which is, in the end of the day, the only real qualification. Until you admit that you have no qualifications, you're not qualified. Now you have to go to God with an empty CV with one word written on it. Jesus. One character reference. Jesus. And it's not Jesus recommending your character. Oh, no, no, no. It's Jesus offering himself as your substitute and giving you his perfect righteousness so that you can see God and live. Oh, friend, that's the gospel. As one pastor said, all you need is need. All you need is need. But you must acknowledge this need and turn from trying to save yourself. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from yourself and turning to God. It's doing a complete 180. And you must believe the gospel message is a message that must be believed. Because fundamentally, to be a Christian is not simply having feelings for God or some kind of subjective encounter. See, feeling warm feelings about God doesn't save you. Having an emotional encounter at the hospital or at a church service or in a prayer meeting doesn't cut it. Now, the gospel is the message that you need to know clearly with your mind and believe wholeheartedly with your heart. Let me, let me say that again. It's so important that you get that this morning. That the gospel is a message that you must know clearly with your mind and believe wholeheartedly with your heart. That God is holy, that we're lost in sin and deserve death, that Christ has died for our sins if we would repent 
and believe in him to save us. Oh friend, do you believe this gospel? Do you believe it? Do you know it intellectually and do you believe it wholeheartedly? Now, if someone comes up to you and asks you, are you a Christian? And you say, yes. Yes, I am. And then they respond, well, how do you know? What would your answer be to that this morning? Do you say, well, I'm a Christian because Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I've repented and believed? Well, what about when they say, well, okay, that's good and all, but what have you done? What have you done for this? Well, do you say, well, yeah, actually, I have been a pretty good person. I've kept these Ten Commandments. Maybe you've heard of them. I've done pretty well. I, I go to church most weeks. I even give into the offering. And I'm nicer than that other person over there. I'm nicer than most of my friends. Or do you say to your friend, no, it's nothing that I've done. It's nothing. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. That's all I've got. It's not Jesus plus water baptism. It's not Jesus plus some special second blessing. It's not Jesus plus speaking in tongues. It's not Jesus plus my denomination. It's not Jesus plus my good deeds. It's not Jesus plus my parents' faith. No, it's just Jesus. It's Jesus. That's all I've got. That's all that I need. I've repented of my sin. I believed in Jesus. He's done it all. Oh, friend, that's how a Christian answers that question of how they're saved. It's a message you must know in your mind. It's a message you must wholeheartedly believe with your heart. You know, the divine salvation equation is clear. It's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Now, Jesus has paid it all. If you're here this morning and you haven't believed in Christ to save you, what's stopping you from doing that today? What's stopping you from doing that right this very minute? You know, since there's nothing left for you to do except repent and believe, you can do that from your seat this morning. There's no good work to do after the service. There's no aisle to walk down. There's no... There's nothing. You can do that right now from your seat. Trust in Christ to save you. Now, friend, if you've done that today, come see me after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about this great God. I'd love to explore more this good news of what Christ has done for us. Well, if you've come to God, our text this morning says that he will deliver you from the present age of darkness. That becoming a Christian means being rescued from the current age of sin and wickedness and being transferred to the age to come. See, while the present age hasn't finally passed away, and while we're still here, our citizenship as a believer has been changed, and we will one day be ushered into heaven to be with Jesus. Instead of having everlasting torment, you get everlasting joy face-to-face with the Savior. So what we've seen in these first four verses, we've seen Paul lay out his authority to preach the message as a minister of the gospel, and we've seen what the gospel message is. But now he's going to begin addressing the big problem in the church. There's a major threat to them. We'll see this in verses 6 through 9. This is the third point, if you're taking notes this morning. 
The third point in our text is that there is a threat to the gospel. There's a threat to the gospel. Look at verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So that's a big problem. I mean, look there at how, what Paul describes they're doing. He says in verse 6, they are deserting him. You see what verse 6 is saying? It doesn't just say an ideology. It doesn't just say the Galatians, you are deserting truth. No, he tells them that they are deserting a person. See, when you mess with the gospel... You mess with Jesus. Now, how often do we think of the gospel or key doctrine as something separate from Christ? No, friend, they are linked together. Now, the word for desert, there's an interesting one. It signifies to transfer one's allegiance. It was used of soldiers who revolt, who change sides, traitors, who are now in opposition of their original side. You know, to depart from the gospel is to leave the side of God and now to fundamentally oppose God. Now, friend, when you adjust the gospel, you are deep from Christ. When you adjust the gospel, you are departing from Jesus. And Paul says, hey, Galatians, this is astonishing. Why would you want to do this? Paul can't fathom what he's hearing, that these Galatians would now try to be tempted to go in opposition to the God who has bestowed grace upon them. Well, look at what else they're doing. Paul says they're turning to a different gospel. What's interesting, as soon as Paul writes that in verse 6, it's a different gospel. In verse 7, he quickly adds, well, actually, no, no, there really isn't another one. There really isn't different good news. Now, the other teaching, this teaching that's so infiltrating the church is not true. It's false. And then there's a third thing he says about it. Actually, it's it's not just a desertion or it's different. It's actually a distortion of the gospel. What Paul is saying is that any change of the gospel doesn't just change it a little bit, but completely distorts it. If you add works to the gospel, it's no longer grace. It can't be mostly grace with just a little bit of works sprinkled in. You know, any works nullifies grace. So Paul's so concerned that his passion just leaps off this page at this point. Did you notice the strong language in verses 8 and 9 as Chris read the passage earlier? Look at it again. Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That word accursed, Paul repeats twice, it's the word anathema. Perhaps by repeating it twice, he wants to make it clear that what he says in verse 8 isn't some momentary, irrational outburst, but it's exactly what he means to say. This was no trivial matter that Paul was dealing with here. And you might say, well, this isn't real loving. Apostle Paul, aren't you supposed to be loving? Isn't God love? Why aren't you being kinder? Why aren't you being more loving? Why aren't you being more more gracious and sensitive and sweet? But think about the alternative. 
To not firmly urge the Galatians to turn from false teaching would be to let them follow the false teacher straight to hell. Now, friends, rebuking this false teaching is the most ex- in this most extreme language as possible is the most loving thing Paul could have done. Souls were at stake. Now, Paul's so serious. Do you see? He even includes himself in the potential curse. He says, "If I ever preach a different gospel, God, take me out." Condemn me for an eternity of judgment. His authority wasn't tied to himself, but to the message, to God. Now he's so concerned that these people are losing grip on the gospel and what it is and are losing it. So he he writes this letter to them. Well, the question that we're presented with this morning is how do you know, how do we know if we've lost our grip on the gospel? Well, I want to mention three threats, but before I do, it's important to say that these threats, these counterfeits, are difficult to spot. That's the danger of false messages. Satan's not about to put up a big sign, a supernatural sign in front of all the church buildings in the world saying, don't come here, they don't teach truth, signed the devil. (laughs) Satan's never going to do that, he's never going to make it so obvious. No, counterfeits are much more subtle than that. The devil doesn't prowl around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour by dressing up pastors in red devil outfits with horns sticking up and putting them up in the pulpit. He never does it that way. It would be too obvious. No, they're dressed like angels. They look good. They're sweet. But they're liars. They're liars meant to deceive God's people. Now this means that these counterfeits are more difficult to spot. There are far too many to mention. Let me mention three that I think threaten our church and perhaps any church for that matter. Let me give us three. First, what I call the Superman gospel. First counterfeit, the Superman gospel, also called legalism. This gospel twists it and says, no, you can actually save yourself. If you've ever watched Superman, this comic superhero, then you know in the end he always saves himself. He gets into trouble and then he uses strength. He uses his might to get out of danger. But the way this false gospel often plays out is usually more subtle than that. It doesn't deny Jesus' death. No, that would be far too easy to spot. No, this gospel says, yeah, sure, Jesus. Jesus is great. Jesus did die on the cross. He did that for us. It saves us, but you actually still need to be a good person to be saved. Right? Of course you have to be good. I mean, you have to just do this little thing over there or these things out there. It's not much. I mean, Jesus did most of it, but you've got to do this thing or that thing. See, this was the problem in the Galatian church. These false teachers were saying, yes, believe in Christ, but you also have to keep Jewish law to be a Christian. You have to keep all the rules, all the regulations, all the ceremonies. Men have to be circumcised. No, it was Christ plus becoming culturally a Jew that equaled salvation. They had added something, just a little something. You know, yeah, Jesus did this, but yeah, you've also got to do these little things over here. 
Now, this false Superman gospel makes our performance the Savior. The true gospel makes Christ's performance the Savior. The true gospel makes his performance the Savior. It's a big distinction. See, adding any works to the gospel distorts it and reverses it. Even just a drop, like I said earlier, completely nullifies grace. I mean, think about taking a glass of pure drinking water. And you drop into it just one little tiny, teensy little drop of poison in it. Just that one little drop in a big glass of water automatically pollutes it and makes it fatal. Now, if you add one drop of works, just one little drop of works to the gospel, you destroy it, you change it, you reverse it, you oppose it. Oh, friends, we need to hear this. We need to know this this morning. The gospel revision always equals gospel reversal. Gospel revision always, always, always equals gospel reversal. Even one little drop. Well, how could this play out today? Well, maybe it's that you have to read only the King James Version Bible to be saved. Or you have to speak in tongues or be baptized or be a part of a certain church or certain denomination. You have to practice certain traditions. Maybe you have to pray certain prayers a certain number of times to be saved. Or maybe it's not doing something. Maybe it's not dancing, not watching television, not being as bad as that guy over there. Maybe it's simply seeing our good works outweigh our bad works. Now, even with a little help, we see that Superman always saves himself. A friend, it's called legalism. And it's a false gospel that's not really a gospel that threatens to distort the church. Well, how do you know if you've fallen for the Superman gospel? Well, here's a couple questions. Do you feel uncomfortable with the idea that you need only to trust in Christ's work on the cross for salvation? Do you believe God is going to take back his saving grace if you disappoint him? you think if you do a bad work, he's going to take it away? Is there anything you think you've done to earn favor with God? Well, if so, you have believed a false gospel that's not a gospel. Oh, friend, turn to Jesus, the substitutionary Savior. Let me give you a second counterfeit gospel. We've seen the Superman gospel. Let me give you a second one that I call the Happy Meal gospel. The Happy Meal gospel, also called prosperity doctrine. Now, kids all know about McDonald's, don't they? Those golden arches that are recognized all over the world. And the Happy Meals that seal the deal. Chicken nuggets plus a toy captures children's hearts everywhere. You see, the brilliance of the meal is not just that it promises a toy. It's the promise of happiness. Parents aren't just purchasing greasy nuggets, fries, and a toy. They're purchasing an experience that will make their kids feel good and happy and make them stop begging for it. Now, sometimes the gospel is packaged this way and makes God out to be a Ronald McDonald figure who wants to give us a happy meal. It makes the pursuit of earthly happiness the central goal of life. What happens is God becomes a cosmic vending machine. You put a Durham in, you push a button, and you get a candy bar. 
You tithe a little more so you'll get more. You serve in ministry so God will bless you at work. You do good things so God can pay you, pay you what he owes you for being good. But see, the problem with this false gospel is that God can never be put in our debt. God never owes us anything. It makes God out to be a puppet whose strings are pulled by our actions. Well, the gospel is not a message that with Jesus you'll be rich or successful, that if you follow Christ you'll be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. No, that message has more to do with happy meals than Jesus' call to his disciples to take up their crosses and follow him. No, Christ's life was one of suffering, and as we follow him, we should expect to follow into that same kind of suffering. You know, eventually this Happy Meal message lets you down. If you see God as a then you'll You may get angry and want to start banging on the machine, you know, shaking the machine, trying to get it to come. And when it doesn't fall, it'll leave you empty and depressed. Well, how do you know if you've fallen for a Happy Meal gospel? Well, ask yourself these questions. What do I pray for? What kinds of things make it into my prayer requests? Am I concerned about others' salvation? About others' needs? Am I concerned about God's glory? Am I concerned about the church? Or am I concerned that God meets my wants, my needs, my desires? Here's another question to ask yourself. Do I go to God or the church only when I want something or I have a problem? Do I go to God, do I go to church only when I need something? Well, if you're believing that your best life is now, then you're believing a false gospel that's not really a gospel. Turn to Jesus, the all-sufficient Savior. So we've seen a Happy Meal gospel. We've seen a Superman gospel. Let me give you a third counterfeit gospel. A third one. The Mountain Peak gospel. The Mountain Peak gospel, also known as pluralism. Now Paul has already spent time telling us that there's only one gospel. And yet, there are those who say, well, Jesus is wonderful. The gospel is true. He's great for you. Have you heard that? He's great for you. Just don't say that good people in other religions can't be saved too. Those people are genuine about their faith. They genuinely believe it. They're good people, and so God will save them in the end. Well, essentially says, essentially this mountain peak gospel says, well, we're all going to the same God. We're just getting to him in different ways, like climbing a mountain up to the peak. We're just on different sides of the mountain. Our journey may look different. But we're all going to the same place. We'll see you up there and eventually we'll all be there together holding hands, singing Kumbaya around the campfire. We're all going to the same mountain peak. Just different ways, different styles. But friend, it doesn't matter how sincere you are if there's no God on top of that mountain. I recently read an article, really just this last month, 
about an airplane landing at the wrong airport. As a pilot was landing in a small city in the U.S. and accidentally landed at a much smaller private airport about 10 kilometers away. Upon landing, they had to stomp on the brakes as hard as they could to not go over the cliff and into the highway. Just, just barely, about 100 meters away from crashing, the pilot was able to slam on his brakes and stop the plane. And afterwards, the pilots didn't know what happened and said, well, we saw an airport in front of us, and so we landed there. We thought it was the right one. A friend, it doesn't matter how sincere you are if you're going to the wrong place. All roads don't lead to heaven. Jesus himself says this in John 14. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Bible couldn't be any clearer. Well, how do you know that you've fallen for the mountain peak gospel? Well, ask yourself these questions. Do I think that everyone is saved? Do I think that my faithful friend devoted to their religion is saved because of their sincere devotion? Do I understand that one must be born again as a Christian to be saved? Well, friend, if you don't believe that Jesus is the only way, then you've fallen for this false gospel, which is really not a gospel. Well, friend, turn to Jesus, the one and only Savior. Well, finally, how do we protect ourselves from false doctrine? How do we, as Redeemer Church of Dubai, guard ourselves against these false gospels that are not really gospels? Well, let me close with four areas of application. Four quick areas of application that we can apply today. First, know the gospel well. Know the gospel well. If someone asked you today to give them the basic message of the gospel in a few minutes, what would you say? Do you know the content of the gospel well enough to articulate the center of your faith? Well, if not, that's task number one for you. We've placed the gospel outline on the bottom of the sermon notes pages today in your bulletin. It goes through a simple outline that I often like to use, God, man, Christ response, and lays out. The good news that we've talked about this morning, God is holy, man has sinned and deserves death. Christ has saved us if we would respond in repentance and belief. On the next page there in your bulletin, we have the two ways to live track that's printed in your bulletin. Another great way to learn the gospel. Know those things. Know this gospel. Memorize it. And better yet, I would be the happiest pastor in Dubai if we sold all 31 copies of Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel, in the bookstall today. Greg's a friend, and in this book clearly articulates this good news that we as Christians hold to and share to others with. So pick up a copy of this book on your way out today. Read it. Marvel at it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. This is why Paul says in First. Corinthians 15, that the gospel is of first importance. That nothing is more important than getting it right. You and I need to know it inside and out. You know, it's interesting when special agents work with counterfeit money, they don't take all their time learning all the fakes. 
They'd, ha- they'd have to learn thousands and thousands. No, instead they spend all their time with the real thing, with the real bills, so that they can be sure to spot a fake one. Now friend, your best defense against false gospels that are not really gospels are to know the true gospel well. This is why we always preach the gospel here at Redeemer, and we're never sorry for repeating the same message over and over and over and over again. Now Martin Luther, again, who... His commentary on the book of Galatians was actually a big spark plug in the Reformation. He was once asked, why are you preaching on justification by faith for the 20th time? And he responded and said, because the people didn't remember it after the 19th time. Isn't that true? Oh, how quickly we forget. So know the gospel well. Second, a second Means of application, prayerfully read the word of God in community. Prayerfully read the Bible in community. This is what we've been talking about in our 9 a.m. men's and women's discipleship classes. It's what Nissen addressed to the men today. To read the Bible, study it, meditate it, but ultimately don't read it alone. Read it alone, but not just alone. Read it alongside other Christians. You want to see a discipling community emerge. Men with men reading the word together. Women with women reading the word together. And join one of our community groups. Each group studies the passage we're going to preach ahead of time. So this last week, our small group studied, our community groups studied Galatians 1, verses 1 through 9. Joining others in community to read the word will help you stay in the truth. Being in community will help keep you from coming up with wild ideas that aren't biblical. So read the word in community. A third means of application today. Become a member of a gospel faithful church. Become a member of a gospel faithful church. Now so many come to Dubai to make money. So many come to Dubai to further their career. So many come to Dubai to provide for family back home. And these things may be okay, but that's what's not okay is for those of us who were believers when we moved here to decide to put church involvement on the back burner because it's not important. They say, well, I'll get committed to God and I'll get committed to church once again when I go back home. Oh, friends, I want to caution you against that lie. Don't see your time in Dubai as a spiritual parenthesis. Don't fall for the lie that being casual about your relationship with God will not have consequences to your spiritual life. No, if you're living here for any length of time and you're attending this church, this is your home and this is your home church. So friend, join the church as a hedge of protection for your soul. Join the 326 existing members who are committed to care for one another and pray for one another and guard the doctrine of this church. Now church membership is a sense of safety for all, including me. I know that if I veer off in some strange doctrine or if I veer off in my character and the way I live, I know that you, that you and that 326 will guide me back to safety. You'll confront in love and point me to Christ. I know that there are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who will be there for me. Oh friend, if you're a believer in Christ and not yet a member, as I mentioned before, we have our membership class starting at 4 p.m. today. Just show up. Just come and be there. A great application of this sermon for you would be to come and join the church. Let me give you a fourth, one last 
means of application today. Speak out against false doctrine. Speak out against false doctrine. Now, writing this letter to friends at the churches of Galatia couldn't have been pleasant. But Paul, but Paul was willing to forsake unity for the sake of purity. Now, this is one of the key roles of an elder. It's to guard the doctrine of the church and to protect it from false teaching. This is why we don't just partner with any particular minister or advertise, quote, every Christian event that comes to the city. We're not just being closed-minded to be closed-minded or being closed-minded to be, to be mean. No, we're terrified to put you in a position where you're going to hear false doctrine because we implicitly recommend a program. Now, this is of grave concern to us as elders. We take this caution in the book of Galatians in a huge way, feeling the weight and the pressure to guard the doctrine of this church, to guard the purity of the church, to not lead us astray into false teaching. Oh, this, is, this weighs on us. This is part of our prayer to protect the flock. See, a church confused by a false gospel is like a blind driver. It will crash. That car will crash eventually. But did you notice something in these verses? Paul isn't just writing this letter to a pastor or a group of elders. He's writing it to entire churches. He's telling the entire church to be on the lookout for false teachers. Oh, friend, are you willing to stand up to a friend who is sharing a false gospel that's not really a gospel? Are you making sure that what we teach at Redeemer is faithful to the gospel and God's word? Now remember that the gospel judges the church. The church doesn't judge the gospel or determine doctrine. Now if you're a member of this church, it is your job to make sure the gospel is preached faithfully. Oh, don't just assume that whatever I say from the front here is right. No, always, always, always make sure what I say or anyone up front says for that matter, make sure that what we say matches with what the Bible proclaims. If I stop preaching the gospel, raise the red flag. Talk to the elders. Talk to the members. This is of utmost importance because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Without it, we are powerless and we are hopeless. Oh, may all we do at Redeemer point one another to Christ. That's our prayer. Which is one of the reasons why we take part in the Lord's Supper, in communion every month. As you can see, in a few moments, we will take part in this ordinance of the local church. Now it is here in the Lord's Supper, we see depicted what I've been talking about in the sermon. This gospel, we see the gospel visualized. So fellow Christians, as you get the bread and as you get the cup this morning, meditate on what God has done for you. Let the truths of the gospel sink in deeper into your heart as you see a picture of Christ's love for you dying on the cross. Well, maybe you're here and you don't know if you're a Christian. Well, when the bread and cup pass you by, uh, let them pass. This is a meal for believers, so let the cup and let the bread pass. For Paul in 1 Corinthians, the same author of Galatians, writes there in 1 Corinthians, that we must not eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner lest we be guilty of sinning against Jesus. Now, this is a meal for those who have already trusted in Christ for salvation. But as you sit and reflect on what you've heard today, perhaps God is dealing with your heart. Maybe God is dealing with you right now. Oh, friend, don't resist him. 
Don't resist him drawing you to himself. And respond to this grace by believing in him, by trusting in him to save you, to deliver you from your sins. Well, now before we take part in the Lord's Supper, let's take a couple moments, as we always do, in silent reflection, reflecting on our own hearts and meditating on Christ's work on our behalf. Let's do that now.